mindless repetition in documentaries can be annoying, but there is some value in stepping back from the chaos now and again to consider what has happened so far. Quite early on in my examination of the Wars of the Roses, I suggested that the wars were not one long period of crisis, but a series of major and connected, but essentially separate, crises. We have waded through two of them so far, and in order to understand the third seismic political crisis of the era, I think we ought first to look at the effects of those first two. People these days talk about political factions and such phenomena as vested interests and fake news as if they are inventions of our time. Sadly, they aren't. Wherever there is a government by man, there are factions and vested interests, and so it was in Yorkist England. The existence of factions, however, is not a problem in itself, because factions are merely an expression of people's differing perspectives on life. It is normal, therefore, for factions to disagree. I mean, if they didn't, there would be no point in having factions. The problems occur when factional strife takes control of events and goes unchecked. We saw that clearly enough during Henry VI's reign. Both York and Somerset, and their predecessors for that matter, saw a king who wanted a quiet life, a king who wanted everyone to agree that peaceful coexistence was good for the soul. Had Henry removed either York or Somerset, he might have kept his throne a bit longer. There was certainly ample justification for most kings to have removed York after his antics in 1452. But Henry did not, perhaps could not, do so. Henry made dithering into something of an art form. All right, so how is that relevant to the 1470s and the final crisis which occurred in 1483? It's relevant because Edward IV faced the same problems as his predecessor, or any other medieval king, which was to balance the influence of his most powerful subjects. In his first reign, Edward was inclined to pardon his enemies in an effort to bring them into the fold, to foster a spirit of unity, if you like. That seemed to make sense after a period of conflict. Well, yes, but many of those who had supported Edward IV, indeed had shed quite a few pints of blood on his behalf, were reluctant to share any of the spoils of victory with their defeated enemies. Very few of them had fought for a change of king because they thought the House of York had been cruelly robbed of its royal birthright in the previous century. They fought because they wanted more power, wealth and influence for themselves and their families. It was pretty obvious that if the leaders of the losing faction kept, for example, their lands, then there would be less to hand out as rewards to the victors. Edward tried to be even-handed, rewarding his supporters, but trying also to build bridges with his previous opponents. We have seen that there were problems with this policy, which allowed former enemies, such as the Duke of Somerset, to keep not only their freedom, but also, in many cases, their lands and titles. We have also seen that it was the dissatisfaction of the victors, 
men like Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, and George, Duke of Clarence, that brought about the second crisis of the period. How then did Edward IV approach his second attempt at ruling England? And in particular, how did he try to control his most powerful subjects? Well, one big advantage he had was that there were really no feasible alternatives to Edward after 1471. The House of Lancaster, bar a few minor relatives, was extinct. This was, of course, very important, but before we get too carried away, remember that the origins of the crisis of 1469-71 to came not from Lancaster, but from within the Yorkist faction itself. Edward IV was no fool, and he knew that his future success would depend on how well he could hold together the sometimes warring forces that had restored him to the throne. Let's begin to take a look at the key political heavyweights in the England of the 1470s, because we can say with absolute certainty that whatever caused the crisis at the end of Edward's second reign, these were the people who brought it about, or at the very least, let it happen. I think it's useful to divide these individuals into two distinct groups. Not necessarily opposing groups, by the way. One group derived their influence entirely from Edward IV himself, whereas the power and position of the other group predated Edward IV. The first group would include, of course, the Queen, Elizabeth Woodville, and her numerous family members, the two most important politically being her brother, Anthony Woodville Earl Rivers, and her elder son from her first marriage, Thomas Gray, shortly to be made Marquess of Dorset. This group also included the King's two brothers, George Duke of Clarence and Richard Duke of Gloucester. Both had supported their brothers' campaigns in 1471, and though Clarence came late to the party, without him it would probably have been awake. The group also included William Lord Hastings, Edward's most trusted personal friend and ally. Edward had made him, and Hastings was a faithful servant. There were no doubt a host of others right down to the plethora of knights and officials in the country as a whole, and it's always best not to forget them. Then there was the other group, largely members of the nobility, whose families had been ennobled long before Edward's time. Their immense land holdings meant that they were effectively kings in their own parts of England, where they controlled the lives of their clients and servants. Foremost amongst these were Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, restored to prominence in the north after the catastrophic demise of the Nevilles. Thomas, Lord Stanley, a power in the northwest, who had tried to ensure in the previous crises that he was on the winning side. History has not been kind to him, but he was not acting for his reputation hundreds of years in the future, but rather to ensure his family's prosperity in the present and near future. You'd have to say that his policy had so far appeared to work rather better than, shall we say, John Neville, Marquess of Montague. There was also Henry Stafford, Duke of Buckingham, who had enormous land holdings in the west of England and the Welsh borders. There was a trickle of royal blood in his veins, since he could claim descent from Edward III, 
and like most such descendants, it was not something he was inclined to forget. Until 1476, another important nobleman was John Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk, who held extensive lands in East Anglia. These, then, were the chief suspects. What did Edward IV have to work with in keeping all these powerful people happy? Well, firstly, he had a lot of land, confiscated from his defeated enemies, notably Warwick, to spread around his allies. He also had goodwill, because, as I've said, there was no real alternative. What about Clarence, you say? Well, I think that horse had already had a run out and gained very few backers. So anyone who wanted advancement had to work for the current regime. In the second half of his reign, many local men became deeply invested in Edward IV's government. These were the people often forgotten in history, the knights and officials who enforced the laws, collected the taxes, served on commissions of all sorts, mustered men-at-arms when required, and so on. Anyone studying the crisis of 1483-5 to will know that these people played a pivotal role in how events unfolded. So Edward had lands, he had goodwill and commitment. But most important, he had a son and heir, Prince Edward. And by 1473, he had a spare, Prince Richard. That meant there was a direct male line of succession. Finally, Edward had the continuing support of the merchant community, especially in London, who believed that he would provide stable government and prosperity. By and large, he did. During the next 12 years, Edward did all he could to strengthen his hold on the kingdom and provide a secure succession for his son. Yet only weeks after his death, his legacy began to fall apart because his son, Edward, was only 12 years old and those charged with the responsibility for his minority government failed to unite around him. Why? What went wrong? Well, despite the enormous amount that has been written about the crisis of 1483, there is no consensus about why it occurred, or to be more specific, who was to blame. I find it astonishing that the antics of Richard Duke of Gloucester and his contemporaries can still excite so much emotive argument after more than 530 years. The main reason for all that often very acrimonious discussion, is of course that we lack the evidence to be certain both what happened and why. Yet there are many other occasions in history where we don't know those things, so what is different about 1483? Quite simply, the difference is Richard, Duke of Gloucester, King Edward's loyal younger brother. The personality cult which surrounds him today is quite remarkable, and its power was amply demonstrated when his corpse was discovered and unearthed a few years ago. So, how are we to make any sense of a crisis which is still charged with energy so many centuries later? My own method has always been to examine the individuals involved and, as far as possible, determine the motives behind their actions. Words like blame, fault, guilt and innocence, which are frequently bandied about, for me have no place in this sort of discussion. 
I don't seek to apportion blame, merely to try to clarify what I think happened and why. So where do we start? Clearly, for things to go wrong only moments after Edward IV's death, the problems must have begun a lot earlier than 1483. The crisis of the 1480s was born in the 1470s. And next time, I'll start to piece the bits of this epic tragedy together. together.